Okay, we'll start tonight in looking at Ephesians. Well, we'll go through Ephesians tonight. So if you'll turn there with me, we'll be looking at um, um, breaking down the, the book and um, an outline. Then we'll look at some, some highlights. There are a lot of them. I mean, this book is just something else. Imagine if someone told you they found out that um, somewhere on your property you had millions of dollars, either in gold or in oil or something like that, um, that you didn't even know about, and then you found out about it. Would you take the time and the trouble to um, uh, find out about that wealth and accumulate it and make it yours? Sure you would, but the same is true for us in God's Word, and especially as we study the book of Ephesians tonight. Because as we get to this book tonight, we'll see um, a couple of uh, themes that stand out in the book. The, the main theme is in Christ ascended. And in Paul's letters, um, he writes to all the churches about them being in, about us being in Christ. When we trust Christ as Savior, the Bible sees us as in Christ. And the, each church, there's a different emphasis. And in the book of Ephesians, we see ourselves as being in Christ Ascended. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We're ascended. Chapter 2, verse 6, and we'll come back to this later in the study. One of my favorite verses in this chapter, 2, 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, in heavenly places, both of those verses, and uh, when God sees us as being in Christ, um, uh, in a very real way, um, we rose with Him from the dead. In a very real way, spiritually, we are ascended with Him now, uh, because when we trust Him as Savior, uh, we enter into that victory of His um, death, burial, and resurrection, and then now, of course, of Him being ascended into heaven, we are too. But also in these six chapters, we see a great deal with what I was opening with, with an illustration about riches, about our riches in Christ. Um, there are several places that refer to that in the Book of Ephesians and our spiritual riches in Christ and who we are. So if you're a Christian on this earth, whether you're from, a, uh, from America or from a third world country, whether you're old or young, whether you're very wealthy um, uh, financially in this life or where you have very little and live in poverty, if you know Christ as Savior, you have great riches in Him. And those riches, uh, even though uh, we, we know they're spiritual riches, the word spiritual doesn't mean figurative. It means it's actual. It's just not something you can put in a bank on earth. It's something we can bank on for eternity and bank on in heaven. So that's the, those are two of the main themes in the book of Ephesians. The uh, book was written about 62 AD, uh, by, uh, during the time Paul was in prison in Rome. And we next week when we look at uh, Philippians and the following week, Lord willing, at Colossians, we'll see the same dates on there. And then also the little one-chapter book of Philemon. He wrote these um, when he was imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel, uh, roughly about six, you know, anywhere about four to six years before he was later martyred for his faith. And so anyway, this is one of what we call his prison epistles. They were written while he was in prison for preaching the gospel. And you'll see a reference, uh, you'll see references in these, these books, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, uh, somewhere in there about the fact that he's in prison as he writes these. Um, he, um, 
he addresses um, in one place as Paul uh, in chapter 4, in fact, as a prisoner of the Lord. So uh, he refers to the fact that he's in prison for the cause of Christ. So that's about the time of writing 62. It's very easy to, to, to outline as far as just a very, very basic uh, outline of it. That is the first three chapters are doctrinal truth. And then the second three chapters, four to six, are practical truth. Now, there is some doctrine found in chapters four to six also, but uh, most of what you get out of the book as far as practical is found in those chapters. So uh, that's just a very easy breakdown of it into two uh, sections. One to three is doctrinal, four to six is practical. Then if you want to break it down by chapter, looking at the doctrinal, Paul addresses the church as a body. We're the body of Christ. In fact, he comes back to that very same thing in chapter 5. But in chapter 1, he talks about how the church is a body. We're the body of Christ. And a body is a living organism. Now, we, we think of church and we think of coming to church and um, you know, worshiping together church. And the building itself, we think of it as an organization. And to an extent, that may be true, but the, the church is more than that. The church, the body of Christ, is a living organism. And then, in fact, over in the book of Romans, we'll refer to it later, but in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the gifts that are given to believers. And he, he talks about how just as a body has um, you know, eyes, ears, so is the body of Christ. Everyone in that body in the body has a purpose, and so the church is likened to a body. The church is likened to a temple in chapter two. A temple was a place they were uh, those that were Jews that were saved um, in, in part of the body of Christ. They were very uh, familiar with the temple. Even Gentiles that were saved that came out of paganism, they knew that a temple was a special place of worship, even though it was for, for many of the Gentiles a false god. But nevertheless. He likens the church to a temple. That is the worship, um, the important worship aspect of a temple and um, how the church is likened to that. And then chapter 3, he talks about the church as a mystery, and we'll get to that uh, when we get to chapter 3 a little bit and do, look at some highlights. But a mystery is basically something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. You can read and see some verses. In fact, and there are places in the um, New Testament, in the book of Romans and a couple other places where Paul writes about the church and he quotes some Old Testament passages and applies it to the church. But in the Old Testament, there was no church. The, word, the church wasn't until Jesus. It wasn't until Jesus and the 12 apostles. And we'll see that actually in, this, in chapter uh, uh, 4 also. Then when you get to the practical part of it, we see in chapter 4 the church as a new man in Christ. Now, we as believers have a new nature within us individually, but he, he writes about the church as being uh, one new uh, man in Christ. We're a new creature in Christ. We are new because we're born again, and as a body of born-again believers, uh, he portrays the church that way in chapter 4. Chapter 5, uh, Paul portrays the church as a bride. And we'll, when we break down that a little further a little later, we'll look at that uh, comparison in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, one of the probably uh, one of the favorite places of a lot of believers in the book of Ephesians is where he portrays the church as a soldier. And that, the passage in there about spiritual warfare, about how... Um, uh, we're, we're to be good soldiers for Christ, or to be soldiers for Christ, and how we go into battle. Uh, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have the breastplate of breastplate of righteousness. We have the helmet of salvation, and so he he arms and equips us 
just as a soldier is spiritually, we're equipped. So we see that in chapter 6, how the church is like a soldier or should be. A recurring theme in the body, or excuse me, in the book of Ephesians is the word unity. And we're going to look real quick at several passages in all but the first chapter. But they're in chapters 2 through 6, I believe it is, they have, uh, there are places where we see unity. It's a recurring theme throughout the book of Ephesians, how there is to be unity in the body of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14 to 19. And when we come back on some other highlights, if I've already read some of these for time's sake, I, won't, I probably won't read at least most of the passage again. But look at 2, 14 to 19. For he is our peace, who hath, broke, uh, who hath uh, both made one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. We sing a chorus a lot of times on Sunday uh, that in our book from that very verse right there. He is our peace. He's broken down every wall um, of partition uh, between us and him. There is no wall anymore. Jesus took care of that. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make of himself twain one new man, and he, he talks about that more in chapter 3, one new man uh, to make peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So you see the one, the word one in there, and, and you see unity brought out. One in verse 14, he's made us one. Um, one new man, verse 15. Um, uh, one body, verse 16. Pick up verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you which were far off, to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So we're one in Christ, Jew, Gentile, uh, and of course, the Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew, if they've trusted Christ as Savior, we're one in Him. We have unity in Him through Jesus Christ. So there's unity in the body of Christ. Uh, and then he kind of repeats this, but specifically mentions Jew and Gentile, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, that the Gentiles might be fellow heirs in the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel. So fellow heirs, of course, with uh those are Jews that are saved. So it's Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. Then there's unity, or is to be unity in doctrine. Chapter 4, verse 3 to 6. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A bond is something that holds something together. Whether it's a rope or, or whatever it may be that holds something together, that's what a bond is all about. It holds it in place. And, and he calls it a bond of peace. Verse 4. There is one body... And one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So um, again, in this, in this passage, we see one, we see unity found, and it's found, it is to be found in doctrine. Then chapter 7 to 16, that's a little bit lengthy and we won't read the whole section. But in chapter 4, excuse me, verses 7 to 16, um, but unto everyone is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And as you read down through there, you see how there is a unity or is to be unity in the body of Christ through the ministry of spiritual gifts, gifts given by the Holy Spirit. Pick up at verse um, 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature 
of the fullness of Christ. So there's to be unity uh, in the body of Christ, especially Jew and Gentile in doctrine and in through the ministry of spiritual gifts. Chapter 4, continuing, verse 17, If you, um, that's kind of a um, hinge verse there that picks up through the rest of uh, the chapter. Um, there's to be unity and fellowship with each other. Um, verse 17, he, he um, gives a negative here um, in the next few verses. Uh, this I say, therefore, and testify the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Uh, when he says other Gentiles, he's saying to those who are Gentiles in the body of Christ, he's, he's showing a difference between them and the, um, and the unsaved Gentiles. Um, and then you see when he comes, when you, read, when you read down through there, after he gives the negative a part about that, uh, pick up at verse 22, that you put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And so he talks about unity and fellowship with each other. And then you read on the, the next several verses, he talks about um, to be honest with each other, verse 25, put away lying, verse 26, uh, be angry and sin not. He doesn't say don't be angry. He says be angry and sin not. There's a difference. Um, neither give place to the devil and so forth down through there. It talks about our uh, speech and communication and then um, talks about uh, having uh, overcoming uh, bitterness and wrath and so forth and forgiveness in verse 32. So fellowship with each other, there is unity. Recurring theme all through Ephesians, unity. Chapter 5, if you'll skip down to verse 18, of chapter 5, and then there's to be unity in worship. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So unity, again, the, the word... Um, uh, submit there t uh, together and speaking to yourselves together. Those We see unity again. Then in chapter 5, verse 21, we're going to come back to this and a little later in another part of our, of our study tonight. And so I won't read this section right now, but he talks also about uh, the unity in the home. Starting at verse 21 uh, of chapter 5, reading all the way into chapter 6 and verse 4, he starts out, um, the rest of chapter 5 with husbands and wives. And then he talks about children uh, and parents, especially fathers, in uh, chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. So there's to be unity in the home. And then there's unity together in battle against the enemy. No one you know, wants to go battle an enemy by themselves. We, we you know, an army works together. An army marches on their, on their feet together. An army moves together uh, into battle. And so uh, chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 10 to 21 talks about our battle that we have with our enemy. And the Lord gives us, um, tells us to be strong. He begins with that, verse 10. Before he even mentions the armor, he tells us to be strong. Then he tells us about the armor of God. And then he describes our enemy in verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Then he picks back up verse 13, and then he starts to describe the armor of God. So he begins with, uh, be strong in the Lord, tells us to put on the armor and to stand against the enemy in verse 11 and 12. 
And then he begins to describe the armor in the next few verses. So we see that there is to be unity in battle with the enemy also. So eight places at least, eight in the book of Ephesians, where he talks about unity in the body of Christ. So uh, we're going to look at some uh, some places here. And, and uh, for time's sake, we won't get to read the whole thing. But we're going to look at some places where... Uh, or some highlights where Paul writes some things for us to go back and review and see some of these riches, spiritual riches in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. I'll just start with the first couple of verses. We see two places where Paul, in his letter, writes out basically a prayer for these believers at Ephesus, for these Ephesian Christians. And really, it's a prayer that we can pray today for ourselves and for other believers. It's a great prayer to pray for a new believer because when you read through these things, you're like, wow, I need this in my life. And if, if I don't know any other way to pray for a new believer, these are some of the things we can pray about. Let's look at a few verses there, starting chapter 1, verse 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints and to all the other believers... Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So what does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So for a new believer, one of the, one of the things you can pray for them, Lord, give them wisdom. Help them to have a knowledge of your word uh, because just a new Christian is very similar to a baby that's born. A new Christian is called, in fact, a babe in Christ. They're babies spiritually, and they need the milk of the word to grow. And so to pray that they will get the, the uh, understanding, the wisdom that they need, the knowledge that they need uh, concerning the Lord. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that the Lord will help them to understand the things they need to know spiritually. And then he, he lists a few more as you read down through there. So there's one of the prayers that he prays for the believers at Ephesus. Chapter 3, if you go over there with me, we won't read this whole section either, but starting at verse 14, we'll look, um, look at some of the things. These are um, maybe a few different things than, than chapter 1 that he mentions in prayer. Chapter 3 and verse number 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. So he goes from praying in chapter 1 for them to have knowledge and to have understanding, and that's very important. But he also prays in chapter 3 for them to have spiritual strength, to have power and spiritual strength for daily living, for the things they face. So these two are great patterns to, to, um, to uh, maybe write down, maybe study uh, individually on, on both of these passages. And a new Christian, maybe somebody you know that's not long been saved, to pray this for them, that, that the Lord would use this in their spiritual growth to help them. Um, you know, we need strong Christians now more than ever. We need Christians that are strong in the Word, that are strong in their, their faith, strong in standing for what is right, and these prayers uh, cover that. All right? Uh, then there's the function of the body of Christ. We read a few verses about this a while ago, uh, but I'll try to look at a couple of them we didn't read. Chapter 4, starting at verse 11. Um, I think we skipped over to verse 12 a while ago, but look at verse, uh, verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. You see about five or so gifts mentioned right here. 
over in um, back earlier this year, we finally finished back in uh, what September, October, the last message. We um, we looked at over the course of uh, several months. We talked about the spiritual gifts uh, found in Romans twelve and in First Corinthians twelve. And he says here that these gifts are given for the body of Christ, and they're given to build up. Verse thirteen we read a while ago for the unity. Uh, till we all come, the, oh, excuse me, back up verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, to mature us as believers, for the work of the ministry, so that we'll know how we can serve the Lord as a Christian, how God has gifted us to try to find that and um, use the trial and error method. If there's something, some way that you're interested in trying to serve the Lord, if you try that and it doesn't work, try something else. Uh, but it says, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Because as we said in our spiritual gift study, a spiritual gift will help you mature as you grow and as you exercise that gift. But it's not, it's not mostly for you. It's for the body itself. It's to build up the body of Christ. Um, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, we studied this. Uh, Paul said, um, you know, if one, if, if one believer says, um, I'm not a hand, am I not of the body? Well, you, you know, you may be an eye, you may be an ear, um, or you may be a mouthpiece, or you may be feet, but you're still part of the body. Just because you're not a hand doesn't mean you're not part of the body. Every part is important. Every part works together, not just for yourself, but for the body of Christ, to glorify the Lord and to edify the body of Christ. And then in doing so, it's going to help you mature as a believer as you do that. As you exercise and, and, um, and apply that gift, you will grow spiritually. Um, but it's not for you uh, for the most part. It's for the whole body of Christ. So let's take the scenic route and look at this. So this is a good one. Let's get into this. This is what we'll take a little time on. Go to chapter 1 with me. Um, there's a, um, a system of theology called Calvinism that was, um, is accredited to a, a, one of the reformers and from France named John Calvin. John Calvin lived in um, the uh, mid to late 1500s. I'm trying to remember the date. I can't remember the date off the top of my head. And he was in Geneva, France, and he developed uh, a lot of what people have taken uh, from his writings, he wrote a series of books called Institutes of the Christian Religion. But a lot of what John Calvin writes is not all completely original with him. He got it from one of the early, earlier people in the church, uh, Augustine or Augustine. Uh, whom I disagree with about 95% of the time. But nevertheless, he got a lot of his doctrine from Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce it. I guess it depends on where you're from. If you're from Florida or South Florida, I guess you call it Augustine because it's St. Augustine. I'm trying to be funny. But anyway, so one of the main doctrines of Calvinism, actually there are five of them, and they actually feed upon each other. But one of the main doctrines of Calvinism, just, Calvinism, just to boil it down, to put it into simple terms, is that basically... Uh, in that system of belief, God has chosen before anyone was ever born, this person here uh, is going to go to heaven. This person here is going to go to hell. That God has chosen that, and you have no choice in that no matter what you do. If you are, as, as they use the word predestined, and predestination is a Bible word, we're going to look at that, or elected, it's also a Bible word, we're going to look at that. To be saved or to, uh, that you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven one day after you die, there's nothing you can do to stop that. You're going to go to heaven no matter what. 
If you're predestined to go to hell when you die, it doesn't matter what you do. You can get on your knees and cry and beg and mourn and, and, and plead with God. I want to be saved. But if you're predestined to go to hell, you're going to go to hell. That is a doctrine that has destroyed a lot of people spiritually. And I, quite honestly, it's sent a lot of people to hell probably. Um, that, that doctrine is very dangerous. And in most of the seminaries today, I don't know how many seminaries that I would really recommend anymore. Most of the seminaries, somewhere in there, you're taught uh, Calvinism a great deal in, in there, even if they don't always use the same terms or words. You're taught that in a lot of seminaries. Here's one thing, and this, this even is for undergraduate. This was in a class I had when I was in college 30-something years ago. I had a class where there's a professor that, that made this statement. Everyone is either a Calvinist, you believe in Calvinism, or the opposite of Calvinism is from uh, some of the teaching of a man named Arminian, Arminius, Jacob Arminius. He said, you're, they'll, they'll say you're either a Calvinist or an Arminian. No. If you believe the Bible, you believe the Bible. The Bible was written way before John Calvin was even born, way before Jacob Arminius, before his grandmother, any of them was even born. These are systems of belief that human beings have come up with. Does God use men and women to, to, to preach and teach or to, you know, scripture to write books or whatever? Obviously he does. Can they be in error? Obviously they can because they're human beings. And in fact, if, they, if that's not true, why would Paul write so many times warning about false doctrine? In the book of Romans, the very last chapter, he says, mark those Put your sights on and understand those who cause division doctrinally and, and watch out for them because they're a danger. And so the, the system of Calvinism, I said all that to say this. Basically, that's the belief system. Now, there, there are denominations built upon John Calvin. There are even some denominations that aren't built upon him that have uh, some groups. There are groups of Baptists. They call themselves Baptists, but they're Calvinistic Baptists. That is, they follow these tenets of John Calvin. So um, it's not limited to one denomination necessarily. Um, and it's not, not limited to any one seminary or anything like that. Unfortunately, today, it's very common, very rampant. But pick up with me in chapter 1. And uh, let's start actually in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus. Now, as we said when we studied the previous books, I think last week in Galatians especially, but in 1 Corinthians we talked about this. The saints is simply another name for believers, for Christians. It's not the way we behave all the time, but we're called saints, which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has, here's one of our words, chosen us. That word's also found in Scripture as the word elect. Same word. Chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Here's another one of our words. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, look at what you see there and what you don't see there. You don't see there that he's chosen anybody to be saved. You don't see there that he's predestined anybody to be saved. So let's look at it and break it down. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, for what? 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's one. Having predestinated us, that is to choose something beforehand. Having predestinated us. You see the word destiny in there. So he's chosen for a destiny. He's chosen someone or some group of people for a particular destiny. Predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, here's something to understand here as you look at this. Those words, you can, you can, you can get this without twisting it around by just simply believing it as, as it's read. So he has chosen us in him. He's predestinated uh, us uh, unto the adoption of children. What does that mean? Well, oftentimes, when someone's teaching this passage, they'll take that word us and make it seem like us, you as an individual. In other words, a whole bunch of just individuals, let's say 10 people that um, uh, are, are, are meeting together, and they're all, they all believe that they were chosen, predestined to be saved, and they're going to go to heaven no matter what happens. So when they do that, they're seeing that us is a group of people as individuals. The us there, folks, is the whole body of Christ. Look at it again, and it will clear up so much stuff. According as he has chosen the body of Christ in him, before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means that God knew way, way back. We're actually going to be talking about this some Sunday. God knew way, way back before he even created anything, before Adam and Eve ever sinned, God already had a plan. So understand this. God can know something is going to happen, but it doesn't mean that he's making the choice for it to happen. God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin and disobey him in the garden. God gave them that choice. He didn't make them choose that. In fact, he gave them that choice and in no uncertain terms. He said, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not to eat of it. If you do, in the day you eat of it, you're going to die. Spiritually, you're going to die. He gave them, they knew that. Adam knew that. Eve knew that probably from Adam, maybe even from God. Who knows? But we do know that she knew she ate, she knew when she ate it. Adam knew what he was doing when he ate it. And so um, it says there that we were chosen in him. God had a plan. So God knew that Adam was going to mess up. God knew that he was going to have a people that we know of as Israel. He was going to have a group of people as Israel and choose them for his old, during what we call the Old Testament time. But he knew they were going to blow it too. He knew they were going to mess up. So he knew that the only way that mankind could be redeemed back to him was through his son, through Jesus Christ. So look at it again. According as he has chosen the church in him before the foundation of the world, he chose that the church would be in Christ, not individuals. He doesn't say, this one's going, this one's not. This one's going, this one's not. This one has to believe, this one has to believe. This one has to believe, this one has to believe. If this one believes, they're saved. If this one doesn't believe, before they die, they're going to a horrible place called hell. Now, we know that from Scripture to be true. We know that much is true. But he's chosen us, the church, in him before the foundation of the world. For what reason? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 
He chose us that we would be um, His church, His people in Christ. He chose us that way. Verse 5, having predestinated us, the body of Christ, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. God's God's saying there, look, my son is Jesus Christ, but I'm going to make you sons. Now, I know women are daughters, I understand that, but the position uh, or the... um, the adoption in Scripture goes back to the Old Testament truth. Remember in the Old Testament, the sons would get the, uh, the inheritance, right? I know a lot of women say that's not fair. Well, whatever, but that's the way it worked, right? The son did, the oldest son, right? And the other sons often would get inherited, but the oldest son was, a, was the heir to um, the, whatever the father left behind after he died. Well, that principle of adoption we're adopted as children as sons into God's family because we weren't in God's family we were lost we were without him so he chose us in Christ as a body not as individuals now let me stop there is that helping in any way does that help clear that up any or is it muddying the waters more I mean, I want you to see that he's not choosing individuals to be saved. Individuals have to choose him, see? But the body of Christ is chosen to be his own, to, to belong to Jesus, to be his. So that's what the us is there. The us is plural, a group, not us as an individual here, individual here that can all say, we, us, we were all chosen, you, y'all were not. It's, it's not the individual, it's the whole body together. I hope that makes some sense. But anyway, so the, um, the predestination there, th- that's a Bible word. He has predestinated. In fact, hold your place and go with me to um, look at verse number 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Well, what's the predestination there? He predetermined that if we choose Christ, we have an inheritance waiting for us one day. So we have heaven. We have all that waiting for us because we've chosen Christ. He predetermined that, that any who choose Christ will get everything with it. They get it all. Um, Go to Romans 8. Look at one more real quick. Romans 8. You know this one pretty well probably. Ooh, i got to move quick. Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. What is His purpose? Verse 29. For whom He did foreknow. God foreknew. Now, I will say this. God knows that you're going to choose Christ. He He foreknows that. But just because He knows it's going to happen doesn't mean He does the choosing for you. God could know that I'm going to walk out of this building and... um, Decide to go. Um, hmm, let's let's hope this never happens. Let's say God. Let's say God would know that I was going to get in my car, uh, Sharon. I'd leave you behind. I wouldn't let you be in a I'd go to a store and rob that store. God knows that. Now, did God choose for me to do that? Absolutely not. No, He didn't. Did He know it was going to happen? Absolutely, He did, because He knows everything. But He did not choose for me to do that. So He foreknew. He foreknew. He knew ahead of time. He did foreknow. He also did predestinate not to be saved, but what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. 
So because we are in Christ, God determined beforehand, okay, you choose my son, I'm going to conform you to his image. I'm going to make you like my son. I'm going to make you like him. So when we get to heaven one day, however we're going to look in the face, the Bible says we'll have a body likened to his glorious body, like his resurrection body. We'll have a body just like his. And he's working in our life to, to make us more like Jesus while we're here on earth as far as our character, as far as daily living, but we'll one day be like him. We'll have a body like him. All right, let's move on. Um, if there are any questions, please, we'll get them at the end. So I need to move on. So here's another thing. In chapter 3, go with me there, in verse 5, there's a lot of deep stuff in Ephesians, but it's, oh, what a book, what a book. Chapter 3, look at verse number 5. Uh, which in other ages... Um, he's talking about before about um, uh, being in Christ, mystery of Christ in verse 4 and as, as the church. Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. This isn't seen in the Old Testament. As it is now revealed unto uh, his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So let me back up and let's look at that word mystery. Um, Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, verse 3, for you Gentiles... If you've heard the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me you were, to you word, how that by revelation is made known unto me the mystery. I wrote a four in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Then he says, in other ages was not known. Look at verse number seven. Let's see what uh, six and seven. Let's see what that is. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Here's the mystery. Old Testament, in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, you see places where God will work and does work and will work among the Gentiles. But what you don't see there uh, in the Old Testament, uh, at least not spelled out to us clearly until we get to the New Testament, that the Jew, that Jew and Gentile who believe in Christ would be in one body. We're one body in Christ. And that's called a mystery. Why? Because it's not seen in the Old Testament. Um, so, in, um, in this passage and another passage in 1 Corinthians 2, we can see the Bible definition of what a mystery is. Um, the Bible is a great commentary on the Bible. Chapter 2, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world and to our glory. So a, a mystery in the New Testament is known by God for His purposes. The Bible says it's for our glory. That's an interesting thing. It's something for us to uh, understand and to, um, it's not the glory in ourselves, but our glory is to, to be able to glory in Him. So that mystery is hidden uh, in the Old Testament, but God has it for His purposes. Uh, we saw verse 5 a while ago how it's, how it's made known in the New Testament. Because it says in verse 5 of chapter 3, it is now revealed unto us by his holy apostles, by the prophets. Um, so it's con um, concealed, that should say New Testament, I'm sorry, not old under that third point. Concealed during the New Testament, hidden in the Old Testament. And then it's revealed to us now in the New Testament. Uh, we see how it's made clear, revealed as holy apostles. So what is a mystery is something that in the Old Testament... Um, was not made clear, but in the New Testament it's made very clear. And so the body of Christ was not seen in the Old Testament. There was nothing there about that. No one knew in the Old Testament prophets. 
that there would be any such thing as the body of Christ. They didn't know there would be what we know as a church, the body of Christ. It was hidden to them because Israel and the church are separate. They're not the same thing. All right. And then uh, mystery of the New Testament church is what he's talking about. We read those verses through verse 6 a while ago. It's unrevealed to the Old Testament believers. Lord would make a new, a different body, the body of Christ. And it includes Jew and Gentile. We're in the body of Christ together. And in chapter 5, verse 32, he also mentions that word mystery about the church also. Okay, um, the church is not a continuation of Israel. It doesn't replace Israel. God, uh, Jesus has his own plan, promises, purposes for the church, just as God did for Israel. Now, God will one day again deal with Israel in the tribulation, but for right now, the spotlight is on Jesus and his church. And then in the tribulation, the Lord will again deal with, with Israel, as he, uh, much the way he did in the Old Testament. 531 in chapter, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 31, is quoted in uh, Genesis 2.24, and then Jesus also quotes it in Matthew 9, uh, 19, verse 4 and 5. Uh, Ephesians 5.31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. I have got to move on quicker than this. Okay, let's see. Um, then chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, about honoring father and mother. That's found in Exodus 20, 12. And he calls it the first commandment with promise in Ephesians 6, verse 2. And Exodus 20, verse 12 says that we'll uh, live long on the earth. Our days will be long to honor father and mother. Chapter 6, verse 10, to be strong in the Lord. Uh, that phrase, or as strong in, the Lord, in, the, in His power or might, something similar to that, is found in those two prayers we looked at earlier. Chapter 1 is found in verse 19. In chapter 3, verse 16, he tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Uh, then the spirit world uh, in chapter 6, verse 12, talks about principalities and powers. I'll just leave that up if you want to write those down. We don't have time to turn to those tonight, but some references about that. Chapter 6, verse 12 is also in chapter 1, verse 21, and chapter 3, verse 10. And then when you get to Romans 8, where we were just a few minutes ago, uh, he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, not even principalities or powers. And then in Colossians, we'll, we'll, we'll touch back on this, maybe uh, go over in a little more detail in Colossians because we'll have four chapters rather than six when we get to Colossians, hopefully in a couple of weeks. But in chapter 1, verse 16, and ch chapter 2, verse 10, and verse 15, he talks about those very things, principalities and powers and spirit world. Okay, tune up. Chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 are great verses about our eternal security in Christ. And I believe that first message I preached a couple of months ago about um, the wells of salvation, I think we looked at those verses. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, chapter 1, verse 13. And those verses talk about our security in Christ. And then also... Chapter 1, verse 13 talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's also found in chapter 4, verse 30. We're sealed until the day of redemption. Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Every Christian should memorize these at some point. For by grace you save through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Great verses uh, to witness and for personal evangelism. Then the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 10 uh, once a person saved, this is just as important. It says, for we, is, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that we should uh, glorify him in those things. So 
uh, chapter 2, verse 10 for that. Chapter 4, verse 1, the importance of our daily testimony. Paul talks about walking worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called of the, in the Christian life. Chapter 4, verse 15 tells us to speak the truth in love. Both of those are important together. If you're just speaking in love, you may not always tell the truth, which you should, but just love won't always necessarily be the truth. But the truth sometimes can be harsh without love, and so we need that balance of both those things to speak the truth in love. Chapter 4, verse 32 gives us the key to forgiveness. It tells us to forgive even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Chapter 5, verse 25, it tells husbands to love their wives, it commands husbands to love their wives. You know, there's something interesting in Scripture. There's not a place in Scripture that tells a woman, to, a wife to love her husband. Did you know that? Go with me to Titus 2. This is the closest thing you'll find. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. Look at verse... Um, well, verse 1 talks about speak the things that become sound doctrine, aged men to teach uh, that they be uh, sober, grave, temperate. Look at verse um, 3 and 4. The aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors that become with holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands. That's the closest thing you'll see. You don't see any command in Scripture for a wife to love her husband, but you do see a command for a husband to love his wife. I can't answer that. Maybe women can. I don't know. But Scripture doesn't give a command for that, ladies. So uh, maybe, maybe you'll know why. I'm sure you do. Uh, and then the spiritual armor for spiritual battle in chapter 6, verse 11 to 17. And then the uh, importance of a prayer ministry. Paul talks about in chapter 6, verse 18 to 20, praying always, and to pray for him that utterance may be given. <clears throat> you know, Jesus taught his disciples, told his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest, he'll send laborers into the harvest. And so um, it's very important to pray for missionaries, for pastors, evangelists, for men and women who are doing you know, work at home or in the States or overseas or whatever, even if they might have the label of missionary, many of them are, even though they not, may not be on a... Um, um, in a missionary, uh, on a mission board, I'm trying to say, but they're doing work, uh, missions of some type, to pray for those who are serving the Lord. And those who serve the Lord, are serving the Lord in places, they definitely, definitely need prayer. He's called Jesus in Ephesians, our fuel up. He's called the Lord Jesus Christ, one of Paul's favorite terms for Jesus. Uh, he's the head of the church and the Savior of the body, chapter 5 and verse number 23. So we see him in Ephesians there. So, And these are... Um, some home address. Chapter 1, verse 6, we read a while ago, when we accept God's Son, God accepts us. The Bible says we're accepted in the Beloved, and He accepts us when we accept His Son. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, I think I read earlier too, where the Bible says that we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As far as God's concerned, we're already there. If you're saved, you're already there. You just got to live out however many more years you got on planet Earth. Isn't that something? But we're already there is the way He sees us. And then chapter 3, verse 20, God can do anything but fail, can he? We haven't seen that in a long time. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. All. He can do anything but fail. And so a great note to stop on tonight. There's a lot in Ephesians. We, we took a lot of... 
like a lot of side turns there, didn't we? A lot of stop. Any questions or anything that you have on, on I hope I helped with that on Calvinism on predestination. I'm not sure if if I made it right, but I hope so. Okay. So what do they what do they preach? Like what do they do? Well, it varies. Some some aren't real strong in the way they preach that. There are actually some people that say they're Calvinists, but they still you know, we'll preach a, a message of the fact that every person needs Christ. But their doctrine is basically that some are basically just predetermined, predestined, that they'll go to heaven and some are not. Um, huh? Kind of. I'll give you an example, and I'm not, you know, I'm not making fun of anybody or anything like that, but I'll give you an example. I had a great-grandmother that uh, was a member of, you heard of the, um, you heard of, y'all heard of Hardshell Baptists? You heard of those? Those are basically Calvinistic Baptists. There's, there are a couple of churches in Madison County that are what, what they call Hardshell. They're primitive Baptists is what they are. That's what they're, the, the titles say primitive, but the nickname a lot of people give them is Hardshell Baptists. I'm not sure exactly where that came from. But um, it's kind of a nickname. I had a great-grandmother that was a member of the one over um, Mariah, right over here at Mariah. She was a member there um, before, you know, up until she died. And, um, you know, it was pretty common back in the day. But um, some of you may have had relatives in that or some other church like it. But that's a Baptist group that basically preaches and teaches that, that you're, cho- you know, you're either chosen or you're, or you're not. And no matter what you do, it's going to happen. So, but the, the other tail end of that, though, is part of their doctrine as well, is that because you're chosen and you're going to go to heaven, you will live consistently till you die and serve, you know, living for Jesus. And if you don't, then maybe you weren't. So the whole thing is, for those who say you're predestined no matter what you can do, or those who say you can lose it, when you stand before God, neither of those are assuring. <laughs> you don't have assurance either way. So if, if, if I thought I had it and I died and I really didn't have it, then I'm not going to heaven. Or if I thought I could lose it and I get before God and I never was saved because maybe I thought I could lose it. So there's no assurance there on either of those if you think about it. They both come up with the same result. And that's what's, you know, that's what's sad. So to be biblical about it, we certainly do not encourage anybody to not live right after they're saved. That's what preachers and teachers are for. That's what we do. We want people to live right. We want people to grow in grace. We want people to live victoriously. We want them to live year after year where they're closer to the Lord than they were a year before. But at the same time, uh, because you do or don't has nothing to do with whether you've been saved. You, you, you're saved when you trust Christ as Savior. So uh, I hope that kind of helps with that. So. Uh, but yeah, I guess it would be more like a safety net type thing or something. That you, you still need to trust him or, or whatever, just in case, maybe. So, anybody else? There's a trend, it seems like. I don't know, maybe it's just people I've met along the way. There's like a trend of churches that are Bible believing churches that are focused on the Old Testament and Jewish tradition. But they're not Jewish churches. Right. And when I talk to those people, they talk about how, well, we're grafted in, so we need to know all the Jewish things because we're just grafted in. We're just part of Israel. Right. And how do you 
answer that. I mean, there is a scripture, right? Yeah, there's some actually some stuff in Colossians. We'll come across a little bit about that, but there. So, part part of the view, um, the view of Calvin, and not just Calvin, some of the other reformers too, was was um, that the church was basically a continuation of Israel, and so um, so some of their writings reflect that, and they. To do that, if you take it out to its furthest thought, it puts the church back under the law. And, you, and Galatians is all about that. You can't go back under the law. We can't. You know, we, we have Christ and we can't go back under the law. And so there, there are some groups that, that do and teach that. They, they teach that you go back and, and you can observe the other. Now, there, in fact, there's a, there's a church up on 72 that they call, you know, it's called a messianic church where they um, observe. Uh, like they'll, they'll observe the Sabbath, but yet they, you know, they preach Jesus, but they observe the Sabbath. Then you got some other groups similar to that, like the seven day. And then it gets really kind of tangled up after you get into that. Cause it come a point where it's like, what? you know, all those things are for us to look at. We know they actually happen. All those, um, the holidays or holy days or whatever they had, the sacrifice, all that. We look, we look back at them because they're accomplished. They're finished. And we see they were completed in Christ. But, you know, to hold on to that, it's, it's like, what's the purpose? But there are groups that do, yeah. To just that, yeah. Good point. All right, anything else? I think the hard sell came from the fact that they were so determined that wasn't nobody going to break through their shell. Yeah, right. I always thought of them as being very strict. As they, what? As being very strict. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. Very, right. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And they're very, they adhere to foot washings, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I mean, that's separate stuff, but yeah. Um, Also, Calvin was, I don't want to get well for another thing, but also John Calvin, through his writings is where um, there's uh, infant baptism, you know, sprinkling babies and stuff like that comes, comes a lot of that from Calvin. So. Okay, that's enough. Let's stop there for tonight. So thank you all for your extra time and uh, a lot in Ephesians. So Lord willing, next week we'll go to four chapters. It'll be a lot shorter, won't it? Philippians, and uh, look forward to that next week. Let's stand close in prayer. We're a little bit late. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. There's so much in it, Lord, to learn and so much of it to study. And I thank you, Lord. I know that tonight we just touched the surface, Lord. I I know there's a great deal in there that none of us have seen yet. And the more we study, the more we see. And um, I thank you, Lord, that we've uh, had the chance tonight to look at several important topics in the book of Ephesians and how Paul writes and, um, and encourages the believers there to be in unity. And unity doesn't mean everybody knows exactly the same amount of knowledge or they've been saved the same amount of time. It just means that our unity is found in Jesus Christ and the central truths and doctrines about Jesus and about your word. And uh, we know, Lord, that our, that's where our, our foundation is. That's where uh, we begin, and that's where the Christian walk continues is through Jesus and through salvation in Him. And we thank you for that tonight, Lord, that uh, no matter who, uh, how, how long we've been saved or how, how much we've grown or how much we're growing now, to know that our unity is in our Savior. We thank you for that. And pray that you'll watch over us as we leave him here tonight, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.